2: This is
0: where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpithancial. It's widely known that there's not enough primary care doctors in the United States. United Health Group found that 13% of Americans live in a county where there's a shortage of PCPs. With demographics changing and access scattered depending on where someone lives, how is primary care adapting? Coming up, we'll talk about options to going to the doctor's office, like seeing a doctor remotely or paying a monthly fee to receive faster care. But first, how do most Americans connect with their medical providers today? The Robert Graham Center in Washington, D.C. studies how primary care is delivered in the U.S. and how to improve access. Joining us now by phone is Dr. Yalda Jabapur, Medical Director at the Robert Graham Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, Dr. Jabapur, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me, Lucy.
0: Uh, I understand before you became Medical Director, uh, you were a family physician. What was your experience in delivering primary care?
2: Yeah, I'm actually currently a family physician still. Um, I've gone down in my hours of being a physician. But my experience was that for those patients who were able to access care in a continuous manner, in a timely manner, the, their quality of care, their perception of their health, their perception of um, happiness with their health and their healthcare system, was excellent. The problem became when patients were unable to get in in a timely manner and instead of seeing me, had to go to the emergency room, um, see another doctor in an urgent care who may not know anything about their past history, their medications, or even worse, end up in a hospital somewhere.
0: As a family physician, so you were seeing certain patients more than others?
2: It kind of depended on my schedule and the schedule of the patient. There were some patients who were very flexible, had many chronic conditions, and would uh, be accessing care in our clinic on a more regular basis. And then there were other patients, for whatever reason, if it was their work schedule their schedule with kids, had very limited times as to when they could come in, and sometimes our times didn't match up. And along with that, we had pretty large patient panels, which means that I was in charge of a large group of patients. So you can imagine I'm only one person. And if we have many patients trying to access care at the same time, some patients end up having to wait. Uh,
0: So if they're not able to get an appointment, uh, the next option for them, like you said, maybe going to an urgent care clinic or some people go to the ER? Absolutely. So, you know,
2: if some patients aren't able to get in, then that's kind of their next best option is going to the emergency room or urgent care. Now, we always tried to mitigate this. In our personal clinic, we had care teams where sometimes nurses could actually handle the patient's complaint so that the patient didn't have to go to an urgent care or ER. They could um, take care of the patient as needed, and then the patient could come in a week later Sometimes um, the patient could see another physician or a nurse practitioner or physician assistant in my own practice, so they weren't necessarily seeing me, but they were seeing someone on my care team, and I found that that actually worked best for patients. So in order to mitigate the circumstance of having to go to the urgent care, having to go to the ER, having the patient not necessarily see me, but see someone on my care team who would then communicate with me um, could help with that.
0: And why is that problematic uh, beyond cost? Because we know it's it's costly when someone has to go to the ER or even uh, pay out of pocket if they go to an urgent care clinic. Uh, but in terms of the type of care they're receiving and, uh, you know, the disadvantages of not seeing someone who knows your history well.
2: Right. Well, exactly. I think you got it right there. It's the disadvantage of not seeing not seeing someone who knows your history well. I mean, patients don't always present to their physicians in a text. manner. And so a lot of knowing how to treat a patient is just knowing who they are, knowing their family circumstances, knowing the community they live in, knowing how they've presented to you in the past. So one patient may present to you one way, a typical way for a heart attack, chest pain, radiating down the left arm or into the jaw. And another patient might present a completely different way. And unless you have that continuity of care with the provider, it's hard for a provider just seeing this patient for the first time to know what's going on. So I do think that continuity of care and knowing your patients and your patients knowing you not only reduces cost in that they don't have to go to the urgent care or the ER, but it also helps providers make correct decisions and can really prevent some pretty uh, drastic health outcomes.
0: This is where we live. On the phone with me, Dr. Yalda Jabapur, medical director at the Robert Graham Center in Washington, D.C., as we focus our show today on how Americans are accessing primary care. Uh, Dr. Jabapur, I understand that the term is usual source of care. What is that, and, and what has the Graham Center studied uh, in relation to this term?
2: Sure. So the usual source of care term actually is more of a term we use when we study um, how patients access care um, and really that term comes from a survey question essentially that we use to study this and so what we've looked at um, at the Graham Center is what types of usual source of care do patients access so for some people usual source of care means that actual provider so dr. Smith is their usual source of care For some people, the usual source of care means a facility, like I always go to Clinic X, but I see Dr. Smith and Dr. Jones, so that would be their usual source of care. And for some people, there's no usual source of care, so they go to different clinics and different providers, sometimes the urgent care, sometimes the ER. And we looked at how that affected um, patient outcomes when they have a usual source of care, either in a facility with a, with a provider or nothing at all. And we found that the percent of people reporting either no usual source of care or care um, having a usual source of care that is a facility as opposed to a person is actually increasing in the United States. And in that study, we also, we also showed that low-income individuals Um, in low-income individuals, those with no usual source of care and facility usual source of care were more likely to have emergency room visits. So this trend can really impact the quality of care provided to the most vulnerable patients. We've also shown that lacking a usual source of care, regardless of your insurance status or income level, was associated with greater reliance on emergency rooms, which isn't only more costly to the patient themselves, but the healthcare system as a whole, and it really doesn't allow for that continuity of care that we all know is so important in the patient-physician relationship. So these are the kinds of studies that we're looking at at the Graham Center, the importance of that continuous care with a provider as opposed to just a clinic or even worse, no provider or clinic at all.
0: Uh, so when we uh, think about um, the outcomes that you're able to pull from this data, uh, how can uh, you know medical communities change this uh, where they live? What are um, some pathways to do that, Dr. Jabalpour?
2: That's a great question. So <clears throat> I think, as I mentioned in my own personal experience, one way to help change this is to not rely only on the physician as part of the care team. We have great care teams that include nurse practitioners, nurses, um, our medical assistants, social workers, and if all those providers could work as a team within a clinic, then everyone could work to the top of their medical license. And this is actually the, the um, theory behind the patient-centered medical home, where everyone is working as a team, they're working to the top of their license, and they're using – technology to help coordinate care, Um, so things like telehealth for the clinic. This way, when a patient has a very simple complaint, like they need their medication refilled, the nurse can take care of that and they don't have to come into the office and take up a visit for someone who may have a much more complex complaint. Also, by having this type of model, our complex patients with multiple health needs don't necessarily need to come into the office every three months. They can be managed by a nurse who then reports to the physician who then either draws labs or has the patient come in depending on the report the nurse is given. So working as a care team instead of Relying on the physician alone can be very helpful.
0: That's interesting. You brought up telehealth because we'll be talking about that coming up here on on where we live. Also, looking at concierge medicine, um, and when you when we think about uh, these uh, models of care, that's something that's growing in particular parts of the country. Dr. Jabapoor,
2: I'm not sure if it's growing in particular parts of the country. I think it's. I think these models of care have been widespread since the patient-centered medical home came to be about 10 years ago. I think the number is about 40% actually of family physicians have worked in a patient-centered medical home. Um, And even greater than that number work in a type of model that's a patient-centered medical home, but not necessarily certified as one. Um, I know in medical school, this is how we learn to practice. So I think it's pretty widespread. I do think that certain areas are are doing it better than other areas, and that's either because they have statewide initiatives to do this um, or private payers in that area are incentivizing practices to do this. So I do imagine there's regional differences um, in how this is being employed.
0: Um, When we think about um, medical schools and and their role um, in um, how we deliver care, uh, what's happening there in terms of of teaching this new generation of doctors and hopefully getting some of them to be interested in primary care?
2: Absolutely. So one thing is that we're trying to expose our new doctors to primary care. This can sometimes be difficult in that um, medical schools are usually based in hospitals, which means that you're not getting as much access to primary care education, but most medical schools do have a clerkship for either family medicine or general internal medicine, general pediatrics where um, medical students can go out into the community and see how primary care is delivered. In addition to that, we are, I used to work at Georgetown University, and I know there we teach the patients in the family medicine clerkship about the patient-centered medical home and how that can work to their advantage and to the advantage of the patients. And furthermore, I think we're really starting to develop curriculum about using telehealth and computers to help patients and physicians be able to access care better.
0: Uh, one of the producers pulled out a data point from the Robert Graham Center that that shows that forty three percent fewer people are are going to a, a regular doctor or a family physician. So how will that change um, when we think about going to facilities for care how people access uh, primary care?
2: It's unclear how that will affect medicine. I think and the kind of care patients are getting. I think as a primary care physician and a researcher. Um, I feel that that could be very harmful to patients just because of the things we talked about in the beginning. It really takes that personal touch to understand patients and how they don't necessarily present in a textbook manner. Um, I think it's really important to have that personal touch. It's important for physicians to be able to not only understand the disease processes in the patient, but... The context in which that patient is living to understand their community their history the nice thing about being a family physician is that we don't only see the mom but we also see the child and the grandma we really understand the family dynamics and that plays into health so much um, a majority of a person's health has nothing to do with the care they receive in the medical office it's really what's going on in their community and their family and so I really think that a family physician understands that and a primary care physician in general understand that um, at a great degree. And if you're not getting that usual source of care with that personal physician, I think it's to the detriment of the patient.
0: I think you touched on this earlier, but when you look at uh, certain groups of patients who are focusing uh, or going to get uh, to a facility versus that regular doctor uh, for their care, that impacts um, more
2: lower-income Americans? Well, in in that one study that we showed, um, we did find that going to a facility or having no usual source of care was more detrimental lower-income Americans. And I think if you think about it, that makes sense. We've had many studies that show the association between having lower income, um, no insurance, and more chronic disease. And therefore, you can imagine if a patient has more chronic disease, is sicker, doesn't have the resources to access health care, that having no usual source of care is going to be much more detrimental to them than someone who might have many
0: more resources and is just not as sick. Dr. Yalda Jabapur again is medical director at the Robert Graham Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Jabbapur, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nall Coming up, we're gonna explore more how technology and innovation is changing the way patients access care. And we wanna hear from you too. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nolpothanchel. How would you describe the last visit you had with a doctor? Was it a routine checkup or did you make an appointment after not feeling well? Coming up, we'll talk about an option for care that's being embraced by some. Concierge medicine is when patients pay a doctor a monthly subscription fee with the idea that the doctor accepts fewer patients and has more time to offer personalized care. Is this way to seek health care effective and less expensive in the long run? That conversation coming up later. Healthcare providers connect patients with in all sorts of ways including through telemedicine. Earlier this year, the US Department of Veterans Affairs awarded a $260 million contract to a telemedicine vendor to bolster the VA's home telehealth system. Now, how does telemedicine work, and what have been the outcomes? My next two guests are joining us from a studio at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. First, I want to welcome to the show Dr. Christopher Ruser, Chief of Primary Care for all nine VA sites in Connecticut. Dr. Ruser, welcome to our show.
3: Thank you very much.
0: So tell us a little bit more about what telemedicine or telehealth means and the services that the VA provides.
3: Sure. So I think the the first important thing is to kind of separate the two two terms. So telehealth um, can be anything from apps that a patient interacts with that feeds data into an electronic medical record um, all the way to um, supportive programs based in the home. Um, through telehealth clinical services, like monitoring patients with chronic diseases, for example, hypertension or congestive heart failure, telemedicine is a clinical interaction using um, typically combination of audio and video. Um, and as far as the, the the VA goes, so the the VA started with um, sort of telemedicine um, and and. Uh, online connectedness through My Healthy Vet, which is essentially a healthcare platform that veterans can sign up for, um, that allows them to, for example, renew prescriptions, um, to contact their healthcare team through a secure messaging portal, which is essentially email, all the way to uh, telehealth services, um, for example, with chronic disease management that I mentioned before, uh, so programs for monitoring patients with congestive heart failure at home, Patients with diabetes in the home. Um, to date, the VA has about 4 million users of the My Healthy Vet portal, uh, and we've done about two, over 2 million telehealth episodes of care over the course of just, for example, the last fiscal year. So, there's large uptake of this.
0: So, Dr. Ruser, uh when we think about the services the VA provides, describe why the VA healthcare system is unique compared to our listeners who may not be veterans or be covered uh, through this particular healthcare system.
3: So, I was listening to um, your earlier guest from the Graham, Graham Center, Dr. Jabapur, and th- I think the most fundamental thing to understand that separates the VA from for example, some of the issues that are uh, that patients face in what we call the private sector is that the VA is an integrated healthcare model. So it's essentially a single pa- an example of a single payer model in the United States taking care of 10 million patients. So along those lines, it's it's almost like an experiment of you know uh, uh, government funded healthcare in the U.S. and that confers a lot of huge advantages. So we own patients veterans in this case, for the lifetime of their care. And so we can be much more innovative and much more creative around engaging in uh, efforts toward preventive care uh, without necessarily having to worry about transactional medicine and some of the exchange of fees, if you will.
0: When did the VA uh, first begin these investments in uh, telehealth uh, services, and what were some of the factors leading uh, the VA to make this decision? Does it have to do with uh, aging demographic? Is it is it easier for some of the uh, veteran patients uh, to use particular telehealth services than actually getting to Newington or to West Haven or one of your community clinics?
3: Right. So the VA uh, was probably among the first, if not the first, Healthcare systems to be fully electronic. So our use of the EMR for essentially all care dates back to the late 1990s. So along those lines, we had some sort of a head start in thinking about how to leverage electronic health, if you will, uh, for the betterment of patients, number one. Number two, I think you're your point about the VA being a different kind of model of healthcare. So as an integrated healthcare system that's primary care based, there's a lot of innovation to think about how we can meet patients uh, or a lot of investment in how we can meet patients' needs in in a more innovative way. I think that the the impetus really though for kind of telehealth services or televideo care comes from the fact that as a, a very large healthcare system, we had patients who were in rural rural areas who couldn't get access to care very easily. So for example, you know, in Montana a four hundred or five hundred mile drive to the nearest VA facility. So there was a huge impetus to develop televideo services to, to connect veterans to the healthcare they need without inconveniencing them. Mm-hmm.
0: This is where we live. Uh, You're hearing Dr. Christopher Rooser. He, again, is Chief of Primary Care for all nine VA sites in Connecticut. As we learn more about telehealth services. If you're uh, a Connecticut veteran uh, who uh, actually uh, benefits from uh, telehealth uh, services, uh, we want to hear from you, the number 860-275-7266. I'm curious, Dr. Rooster, when you mentioned uh, rural rural parts of the country and how uh, telehealth can really help uh, those patients. Uh, Connecticut's a small state, so how, um, when we think about uh, veterans and their families uh, using telehealth services, uh, who is a typical patient uh, in Connecticut doing so,
3: so it, it's 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 hard to answer that question. In a sense, I think one of the most stereotypical things we can do in healthcare is to say that um, patients who are older, for example, over 65, won't engage in you know more innovative, modern uh, technology-based healthcare venues, if you will. That's actually not true. So the VA, if you think about it, over fifty percent of our users uh, are registered uh, for My Healthy Vet, for example, and and given that our population of veterans is is skewed towards an older demographic, it kind of disproves that. So it's it's hard to characterize the typical patient in a sense. So it might be someone who's older and has difficulty getting to the hospital with a chronic disease, for example, CHF, that makes them, you know, it makes it even more difficult for them to, to get to the facility. But, and it can also be younger people, it can be people who are working, um, who are taking care of a loved one, uh, who can't leave the home very easily. We've seen all sorts of examples of that. Connecticut, oh, go
0: ahead. Go ahead, Dr. Russo.
3: No, as I say, Connecticut, to some extent, you know, we've used more of the technology uh, in the I- arena of chronic disease management, as opposed to providing remote services, at the same time, though, even though it's not a huge state, we've seen an increasing reliance on televideo care um, as traffic gets worse, et cetera, et cetera.
0: And when we think about outcomes, uh, you're seeing—are you seeing less hospital admissions or readmissions, Dr. Ruser?
3: Yes, um, specifically in the area of telehealth, so monitoring chronic diseases. Uh, it, it's It's difficult to kind of characterize those statistics. At the same time, the VA has shown numbers around you know thirty percent reduction in hospitalization uh, and about the same reduction in readmission. So in other words, you know a patient who has a chronic disease, I keep using the example of congestive heart failure because it's almost a daily management based on weight if a patient starts to to get more short of breath and have more fluid in their body. Uh, A nurse connected to them through telehealth, for example, monitoring those parameters um, through remote devices can decide to change their medications and thus avoid them coming back into the hospital. So we've seen bigger gains than have been shown typically in the literature.
0: Again, this is where we live. We're learning more about telehealth, and, uh, one way to offer care, uh, an innovation that the VA, VA has been using for some time. You can join our conversation, 860 275 7266. I wanted to bring in uh, our other guest uh, at the studio at Yale University. Uh, joining uh, Dr. Ruser is Dr. Yohani Solad, Medical Director of Digital Health and Telemedicine for Yale New Haven Network. Dr. Solad, welcome to our show. Good morning. So uh, you are not part of the VA healthcare system. I'm curious if you could talk about how Yale New Haven is uh, integrating uh, telemedicine uh, within its network.
4: Yes, um, Yale New Haven Health is actively looking to bringing Uh, telemedicine to all uh, levels of care starting from inpatient services where we can leverage expertise that we have in our system all around our hospital and the good examples are tele-icu units that we have in our main new haven campus that's actually covering remote hospitals uh, around our system and frankly speaking around the state lines Uh, Plus, we we continue to do specialty services uh, like telestroke or teleneurology, again, for the high-level services inpatient, which, if you think about it, allow you to scale better and bring expertise to the places um, where you may not have immediate high-level coverage. And obviously, we're trying to bring more uh, patient-facing care, which which can range. And um, as was previously mentioned, there is a huge difference between telehealth and telemedicine. Um, as part of a telehealth efforts, we, we're working actively on a chronic disease management where we have significant population of patients who want to bring chronic care information like weight uh, or blood pressure to physicians. And our goal is to make it simpler because physician already burned out um, and require some help monitoring this so the set of tools that allow you to proactively monitor and notify is very helpful. But then traditionally, uh, when you think about telemedicine, it's just a regular access and extension of your regular visits. So simplicity, uh, where you can see your physician, and hopefully not just the random providers uh, on, over the Internet. That's happening with a lot of the telemedicine providers right now, but it's actually your dedicated care team. Uh, via telemedicine, something that can be treated remotely fast and conveniently.
0: So if someone has a a chronic uh, disease, instead of having to wait for an appointment to see someone face to face, uh, uh, they can be in touch with uh, a team, so to speak, using this software system so that uh, they're able to be monitored remotely and then if there is an issue they can come in uh, when necessary, Dr. Soled?
4: Yes, our goal is to actually have this continuous relationship, correct? Not, not just get in touch when you feel you need it needed, but have this constant contact where we continue to monitor and maybe help uh, to capture uh, and provide you help before you even feel you need it. Because I think this is where the true benefits of a telehealth coming to play. Uh, we've been uh, reactive for too long in the healthcare, um, so I think now it's a great time to leverage technology advantage, to actually push it a little bit more on the preventive side.
0: Uh, before we take a call, I just wanted to ask uh, in terms of how insurance companies uh, are looking at uh, telemedicine and telehealth services. This is this something that is covered by most plans, Dr. Salad?
4: Um It depends, uh, but I think we see more and more coverage.
0: You can join our conversation eight six zero two seven five seven two six six here on Where We Live. Ken's calling from West Hartford. Ken, go ahead. Hi. What's your question or comment?
1: I'd just like to uh, make a comment, and in support of uh, the VA in general, and specifically the VA in Newington. I'm just uh, driving back from the VA in Newington now, where we held a two hundred forty third birthday celebration for the U.S. Marine Corps, and uh, I am a avid supporter of the telehealth system. I think it's fantastic, and I would like to uh, just vote my support for the VA and all the good work that you do. The staff in Newington uh, are all fantastic. That's where I get my Most of my health care from the VA. Ken, can I ask you?
0: Ken, can I ask you? You say you actively use the telehealth system. So describe that for us as a patient that uses it. So tell us how you interface with it.
1: Well, um, as the doctor was saying, it it provides a lot of flexibility as well as uh, a breadth of service. So I I use it for ordering my drugs, I use it for making my appointments, I use it to check uh, my health record and and blood work, for instance, before I go for my annual physical uh, so I can make a good comparisons of uh, where my stats, blood work stats have been in previous years versus the current year. So it, it offers a very easy and fluid way to, to uh, not only make appointments but do a lot of other things such as I mentioned.
0: Well, thank you, Ken, for your call. I'll go back to Dr. Christopher Ruser, chief of primary care for all nine VA sites in Connecticut. Uh, we just heard from someone, a veteran, um, who uses the telehealth service. And I'm just curious, uh, Dr. Ruser, uh, when uh, most people hear about the VA, they hear about wait times. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious what the challenges are, despite having telehealth services, when you think about all the patients the VA system serves nationwide
3: yeah so the the Connecticut VA, for example, we take care of fifty thousand veterans. so um, a, and it is a huge system, ten million veterans across the country. I think to some extent, the the what what you hear on the news versus the reality of access to care are kind of two different things. In Connecticut, for example, um ninety eight percent of our veterans in primary care can get an appointment within thirty days, whether they're new patients or established patients. And we've worked very hard to do that. Um, specialty care in Connecticut, we're also a bit spoiled in the sense that uh, with our connections to, to Yale and to, to UConn, um, we have very good specialty care, and so wait times there are actually uh, uh, quite good. I think, though, as a larger system, the challenges are uh, in places where it's difficult to, to recruit specialty uh, specialists um, and in places that I mentioned before that have rural challenges, and um, We have a lot of examples though of how we can kind of overcome them using technology. So for example, if uh, a patient is uh, seen at one of our clinics in Connecticut and may not have easy access, for example, to a specialist, let's say a a cardiologist, we can send what's called an e-consult and save that patient a trip. And so using our electronic medical record, a primary care doctor in the corner of Connecticut can send an electronic consultation to a doctor based in West Haven, and that doctor can provide an expert opinion without necessarily having to bring the patient all the way down to West Haven. So we connect, think of access in a different way, leveraging technology.
0: Oh, what about the infrastructure that the VA uses in terms of their IT system? Is that something uh, that is becoming dated? Or when we think about the uh, as more veterans are entering into the system, I and mean, how you're going to be able to support that?
3: Yeah, I think that's a valid point. Um, Our electronic medical record, which was one of the first in the country, is now showing its age. And so you mentioned the Cerner contract earlier on the call. Uh, That would be an effort towards modernizing um, the software. I think there's also risks, though, with, with hardware. Um, are in some places the bandwidth to leverage a lot of telemedicine uh, capability limits speed and the quality of connectivity. So I think the VA, unless we uh, invest in it financially, I think there is a risk, for example, that we start to fall behind in those areas, no doubt.
0: Uh, With you in studio at Yale University is uh, Dr. Yohani uh, Solad, uh, Medical Director of Digital Health and Telemedicine for Yale New Haven Health Network. Uh, Dr. Solad, I just want to make sure we're describing this uh, well for listeners when we talk about um, how patients within your network are also using uh, telehealth services. Um, Is it an app specifically? Is it a link, a web-based link that they can then go on and use via their computer? Um, If you could describe it a little bit more.
4: Yeah, so we currently have uh, two main options. Uh, one is a mobile app called MyChart, which is a part of our um, EMR Epic EMR uh, system, where you can download and use your MyChart account to not only to access telemedicine care, uh, but also to continuously monitor your uh, in- information as well as to access laboratory results. You also have the same version of a portal um, that's accessible via web browser. Um, and we're currently working on unifying a lot of the additional services we provide in a single um, mobile application that will be specific uh, to our patient and will bring even wider variety of additional telemedicine services, uh, as well as provide an integration with some third-party applications uh, that can benefit um, uh, our patients.
0: And as part of that, um, how do you assist patients in accessing tech? Because some of it might be complicated.
4: <laughs> I, I, I'm a strong believer that the tech supposed to be easy. okay, and nobody, Intuitive. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, when you look at the way smartphone penetrated our life, it's been a pretty quiet revolution. We didn't have a, a lot of training around how to use a smartphone. So I'm not really sure why a lot of our healthcare-related services are supposed to be so complicated. Uh, so, we, we're trying to do a lot of uh, user centered design sessions or meet, meet with our users to be sure that things we're building is actually quite intuitive. And obviously, you have additional uh, educational materials in the case you need it.
0: Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to ask both of you uh, because of your experience uh, with uh, telemedicine and offering telehealth uh, services, is this something that will be um I guess, integrated more and more uh, for our listeners who may have never accessed uh, telehealth before. Is that the future? Could both of you describe that in terms of the devices we use today? Dr. Rooster, I'll start with you.
3: Um, I think the there's no doubt. I mean, in the the VA started uh, what's called uh, VA Video Connect, essentially. If you had an acute need and you, you called your medical center within the VA system, we can send you a link and you can have a, what would be like a Skype session with, with, a, with a provider. In the rollout of that system in just the first year, there was like a 300% increase in uptake of use. So I think the numbers speak for themselves um, that we will see more and more of this. But I agree that I think that the, the real work is in making the interface easy to use um, and making it sort of streamlined and seamless.
0: Dr. Salad.
3: Yeah, so telehealth is just an extension of regular uh, regular
4: health. And I think the more we actually start to integrate it in our regular clinical practices, the more technology will start helping to leverage clinician this continuous influx of information and coordinate continuity of a telemedicine interaction, the easier it will be for us to start delivering skills. So I think in the future, you'll see more and more of that. Absolutely, no doubt.
0: Again, Dr. Yohani Solad is Medical Director of Digital Health and Telemedicine for Yale New Haven Health Network. Dr. Solad, thank you for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Also, Dr. Christopher Rooser, Chief of Primary Care for all nine VA sites in Connecticut. Dr. Rooser, thank you. Thank you so much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nall Coming up, having to wait to get a doctor appointment isn't the reality for people who choose direct primary care. After the break, we're going to learn more about how concierge care works. And if you use this type of service, you subscribe to a doctor, we want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Most of us subscribe to many things, whether it's a newspaper, a gym membership, or Hulu, but would you be open to subscribing to a doctor? Flat-fee primary care is an option some are choosing who want their doctor to give them care that's more personalized. Could this model work for everyone? Joining us by phone is Dr. Jeffrey Friedman. He's an internal medicine physician in Newtown, Connecticut, and he works under MDVIP. Dr. Friedman, welcome to our show.
5: Well, thank you, Lucy. Uh, I've been listening in. It's been a great show.
0: Well, thanks for again for giving us some of your time today. I mentioned you work under MDVIP. Describe that uh, to our listeners who may be unfamiliar.
5: Sure. Um, firstly, MDVIP stands for Medical Doctor Value and Prevention. And what MDVIP does is they provide um, support services really for a network of just under a thousand primary care doctors all across uh, the the country, um, helping them uh, provide care with an emphasis on prevention, wellness, Early detection of problems, and if you have a problem, getting you to the best place uh, in the country for treatment of that problem. I
0: understand that you were in private practice uh, for a long time before you made the switch again to this uh, this concierge medicine model. Uh, why? Describe some of the factors that led you to do that, Dr. Friedman.
5: Uh, well, I've I've been in practice since uh, 1982, and. Um, the way I was taught to practice medicine is to spend time with your patients just as our uh, as your first um, guest uh, said there's no substitution for that one-on-one personalized doctor-patient relationship and that's how I was taught to practice medicine Um, but medicine has really evolved over the last 10 years where big business has taken over uh, medicine and um, doctors are pressed to see greater and greater numbers of patients Um, You know, across the country, the average duration of a patient visit is in primary care is under 10 minutes. And you really cannot do an adequate job in in eight minutes um, seeing a patient. And so um, I started to look for alternative um, practice models that would allow me to practice the way that I was taught, to spend that time uh, that I feel you need to make an appropriate diagnosis to get to know a patient um, and to give them the care that they need and deserve.
0: Uh, Dr. Friedman, you mentioned, and many of us are familiar with this, when we go to the doctor and we wait and wait and we might get 10, 15 minutes and then they're on to their next patient. Uh, when you talk about the big patient load that you had, but also a lot of insurance paperwork that took up your time?
5: Um well, there's there's charting. You know, I think the electronic medical record is the big thing that takes up uh, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of your time uh, today. Uh, it it certainly does not make um, the uh, the practice of medicine right now more uh, more efficient. Um, but in the MDVIP model, I still accept all of the insurances that I had previously. <laughs> You know, this model is not in conflict with mm-hmm. uh, with insurance. It can be mm-hmm. coupled right along with a patient's uh, insurance.
0: But who is your typical patient? Because my understanding of this type of concierge uh, uh, care is that um, the patients, you're, get, you're, ta- you're taking on less of a patient load, right? So you have more time yeah. to take care of a patient. But the patients are also paying a, a yearly, monthly fee that maybe not all patients could afford. We're talking, uh, what, uh, how much per month? Month, uh to sure, get your a, your that's,
5: care. That's a great question, uh Lucy. So, firstly, the cost amounts to what someone would pay if they went uh, and got a Dunkin' Donuts coffee and a donut. It's under $5 a day. So if you uh, look at that on a monthly basis, that's about $150 a month, which is really quite um, quite a reasonable and affordable uh, fee for, uh, for most people. And when you look at um, when I look at my demographic from before I um, converted my practice to now, really the demographic is the is the same um, I have uh patients who are school teachers, patients who are small business owners uh policemen uh people from all walks of life it 's not just This is not a system that's just for um, the wealthy. Uh, It's really a system for people who understand the value of their health and understand the value of uh, a good relationship with a doctor that they trust, who's going to advocate for them in their time of need.
0: We started the show, uh, Dr. Friedman, here in where we live, talking about the future of primary care and the fact that uh, more people are seeing uh, a primary care physician less. Instead, they're waiting to go to an urgent care, or if they're sick and they can't find time for an appointment, they head to the ER. We know how costly that is. Uh, But can we talk further about how, if people are making an effort to have routine care, seeing a, a physician like yourself, that in the long run, that's actually costing them and the system less
5: uh well uh, i believe people in this model um the net effect is that um it does cost the system less mdvip has studies that show that um patients uh uh, on medicare for instance have a close to 80 percent um reduction in hospital admissions and um for hospital readmissions and almost 90% reduction in readmissions, and the reason for that is the doctor has time now um, when you're sick to get you in the same day. Um, For each visit, uh, the doctor has the time to make sure that the patient understands what the treatment plan is. The doctor is making sure that the patient is following through with the treatment plan. On the converse, when a patient gets discharged from the hospital, I'm able to see that patient um, within a few days of their discharge, if not the very next day, Um, and therefore I'm able to go over exactly what the discharge plan is, make sure the patient understands what the new medicine changes are, um, and that results in better outcomes for patients.
0: (laughs) This is where we live. On the phone with me, Dr. Jeffrey Friedman. He's an internal medicine physician in Newtown, and he works under uh, MDVIP. It's a concierge medicine company, and the idea is that the patient is subscribing uh, to a specific doctor, paying a monthly fee. Uh, the doctor takes less patients, and the model is that you're then able to spend more time. The doctor spends more time uh, with the patient. If this is something that uh, our listeners have tried, uh, we'd like to hear from you, 860 seven two six six find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live uh, you know I was uh, looking at, at a CNBC um, report about uh, concierge medicine dr. Friedman and uh, despite I uh, you know MDV VIP's been around since uh, 2000 this still makes up less than ten percent of physician practices nationwide why do you think that is
5: well I I think that um, it takes time for uh, for a practice um uh, model in this you know of this nature um to really uh get get um for doctors to become familiar and comfortable with it um you know you're not taught uh to go into a concierge practice um in uh you know from from medical school um you know so i think that doctors are uh, are really just not exposed to, to this model. Um, but part of the reason that I, I decided to migrate my practice into this model is I've, I saw all the changes that were happening in the healthcare uh, industry. and I wanted to pract- uh, to protect, the model of um, of practice that I was really taught in medical school. You know, I was taught spend time with patients, listen to them. Um, You know, if you take a good history and physical 90 percent of the time, the um, uh, you'll you'll Put the patient on the right path to um, to discover their their problem. Mm-hmm. You can't do that in, in an eight to ten minute office visit. It's simply not possible. Um, you need more time with patients,
0: Doctor Friedman. You mentioned that uh, you know coming out of medical school, uh, students aren't learning about uh, concierge uh, care. But do you have any medical students maybe shadowing you now?
5: I do. I uh, I'm a preceptor for. Um, UConn Medical School and for Quinnipiac Medical School. Um, and so I have stu- first and second year medical students um, who come one day a week and, um, and are basically learning, um, you know, how office practice works.
0: Well, we hear, uh, you know, over the years that there is a shortage of primary care doctors. I mean, how do you uh, talk about the work that you're doing uh, to these students?
5: Well, um, I, I think the the value for the students is they see – A doctor who is able to spend a minimum of 30 minutes uh, with each patient um, who's able to develop um, an ongoing care plan uh, for each patient Um, and I I believe that the students uh, like that it's kind of the way that I was taught to practice medicine you know way back in uh, in medical school uh... and unfortunately there's a shift in how uh... how we practice uh... today it's all about getting people in and out um, you know very uh... you know very rapidly and that's not always the best type of care for each individual patient. Mm-hmm.
0: I understand that uh, policymakers in Washington, uh, members of the Republican administration, actually embrace this direct primary care model, uh, favoring market-driven approaches to health care. Do you see this uh, type of model growing, Dr. Friedman? And we've got under a minute. Uh,
5: I believe that this, uh, this model uh, will, will grow. Um, I think it's a great model for, uh, for both patients and for physicians, uh, and I see it as gradually uh, growing in the, in the future.
0: Dr. Jeffrey Friedman, again, is an internal medicine physician in Newtown, Connecticut. Thank you for joining us today.
5: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Today's show produced by Phil Geolopsis with help from Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kayon Wolf. Thanks to WMPR intern Penina Beatty for screening our calls. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.